0: It's good to be back. Our family had a great holiday um, up the Central Coast camping and then we were away with my mum for her 60th and so we had a lovely time. So, But I, as I was driving to church this morning I was so pumped. I was like, oh, I can't wait to be back with you guys singing praises to our Lord. So it's good to be here. It's good to see your faces. We're going to continue preaching through another psalm this week. Last week Richard preached on um, Psalm 145 and so I'm going to preach this week on another psalm from our latest album that Southern Grace Church has put out called Unchanging God, Volume 1. It's a two-volume Psalms album. I highly recommend you listen to it. There's some incredible songs on there, all based upon Psalms, so you can read the Psalm and read the song and get the, um, the thing together. And after the sermon today, we're going to sing the song from that album, um, Psalm 90, which is called From Everlasting. And then next week's Mother's Day, and then we'll jump back into Matthew. we'll we'll finish that off. Okay, so Psalm 90. If you're reading along, we use the ESV version and at the top it says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Let us read. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. For as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Would you join me in prayer? O God, our heavenly Father, We ask that you may bless the preaching and reading of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. It's a very interesting psalm, the one we have before us. Contemplative, reflective, poetic, from Moses, as we saw. And it got me thinking of a New York Times article that I'd heard about, and I went and read this week from an organisational psychologist, Adam Grant. He works at Wharton uh, as a university lecturer and he's a sometimes writer for the New York Times. And he wrote an article last year, April 2021, that was the most shared article of that year ever on the New York Times. Um, It was incredibly well known. He had a TED Talk that's had 5 million views as a result. It's it's one of those things that's taken off because I think he put his thumb, what's the expression? I'm doing a Richard here. He put his thumb on the something, you know. (laughs) Whatever that expression is. The title of the article, uh, I think, says it all, and then I'll, I'll quote from it. And it's about our, how we're responding in light of COVID. Uh, and mind you, this was a year ago, but I think a lot of it still carries over. This is the title of the, the article. There's a name for the blah you're feeling. It's called languishing. The neglected middle child of mental health can dull your motivation and focus. And it may be the dominant emotion of 2021. That's the title. And then he says this in relation to what he was experiencing coming out of all the lockdowns. He says this, it wasn't burnout. We still had energy. It wasn't depression. We didn't feel hopeless. We just felt somewhat joyless and aimless. Turns out there's a name for that. Languishing. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield, and it might be the dominant emotion of 2021. Maybe you're feeling that or have felt that. Languishing. Not depression, not positivity, just somewhere in the middle. You still have energy, but you're not really flourishing. You don't have mental ill health, but you don't have mental health. It's somewhere in the middle. Some of the fruits of that languishing feeling is just the forever scroll. Doom scrolling, they call it, apparently. Just, you keep scrolling, and sometimes I even say to my phone, like, as a joke, because I realise I'm doing it, entertain me, you know, I just want something, you know, to break through. Binge-watching TV series that aren't even that good, he remarks. Task-switching, apparently we check our emails 74 times a day. Looking for change, perhaps, to get through it. New areas, fulfilment. Something, anything to fill the void. And perhaps even in the malaise of post COVID and all that, you may be thinking, what really is the point of it all? What really is the meaning of life? You know, why am I doing all that I'm doing? Why am I living where I'm living? Why am I serving where I'm serving? We all have moments where we are caused or forced to pause and reflect, whether it be through a sudden job loss, death in a family, relational breakdown you're experiencing, some other loss or series of losses, missteps or pain. It could be continual health challenges, or it might be the reality of COVID. It's forced a lot of people, including myself, into a more contemplative status. Thinking, why am I here? What am I doing? And that state of contemplation is not always comfortable because it it leads you to think deeply, to question. The psalm we're studying this morning is one that invites us into that contemplative and reflective space. We learn, as we saw at the top, that this was a psalm written by Moses. A prayer, in fact, by Moses, the man of God. We don't know exactly when Moses wrote this prayer, but we know enough about Moses' life to see how he could be drawn into somber contemplation and reflection. I think looking at some of the background of Moses' story will help inform how we read Psalm 90. Otherwise, why else give it the inscription? So you know the story of Moses, perhaps. A young boy saved through abandonment by his parents because of the edict that all young boys in Egypt who were Israelites should be put to death was brought up by the daughter of Pharaoh into a life of royalty. He eventually rejects that life, kills a man and flees into the wilderness, reestablishes himself, marries the priest of Midian's daughter and has a life as a shepherd out in the wilderness, enjoying his life, presumably. And then all of a sudden, 40 years after he's left Egypt, he notices a burning bush. God calls to him from that burning bush and charges him to become the leader of his people and to come back to the royal courts and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. He's sent back to his native land. He rebukes the household he came from. I mean, he's rejected by his own people at various times. But eventually, through God's grace and wondrous acts and miracles, the Israelites, as you know, were led out of Egypt through plague upon the Egyptians and miracle for them. And Moses is the unlikely leader, the unwilling leader, if you know the story. And as he gets them out of, the promise, out of the Egypt on towards the promised land, the people that he saved out of slavery through God's help then just constantly grumble and complain against him and against God. He has a mountaintop experience. He receives the Ten Commandments from the Lord, comes down only to find that his brother and the people of Israel have abandoned God and made a false idol and are worshipping it in a drunken orgy. And then, if you continue reading through and you get to Numbers 13, the people of Israel arrive on the doorstep of the promised land. They send in spies, they check out the land. And 10 out of that 12 spies come back to the people and rise up with complaint and say, We cannot take them. They are giants. We will be destroyed. And only Caleb and Joshua stand for God's plan to take the promised land. And so the people reject God. The people on the brink of all that they've gone through after wandering, after being in slavery, a turn to 40 years of desert meandering. And God judges that people and says, not a single one of you, other than Caleb and Joshua, will enter the promised land. And so then, think of this, 40 years stepping through sandy soil in the heat, setting up tents, packing down tents, moving along at the will of the Lord. And as they wander through the desert, 40 years, day by day, week by week, month by month, the whole generation dies. And Moses lives through it all. They were a walking graveyard. A march, and as they marched, it was tombstone after tombstone after tombstone. And Moses lived a life in a funeral, waiting for every single man and woman who was of age to die. Then you get to Numbers chapter 20, and Miriam, his sister, dies. Aaron, his brother, dies. And Moses strikes the rock in anger against God and and God declares to Moses, you too will not enter the promised land. (laughs) After 120 years of life, 40 years of eager expectation entering into the promised land, now it's come to nothing. And perhaps that creates the occasion for this contemplative psalm. He pens this song, this prayer, this meditation that's sombre, reflective, dark at times, yet, you will notice, not bitter or defeated. It's real, it's gritty, but it's still hopeful and yearning. And as he pens this spirit-inspired contemplation, we are guided in our quest for meaning and understanding of this thing called life. So whether you come languishing today perhaps dealing with profound grief and suffering, or maybe you are full of hope and optimism. But today the Lord would have us journey with Moses through this Psalm to see this, that in the midst of our frail and fallen lives, God eternal is our only refuge. In the midst of our frail and fallen lives, God eternal is our only refuge. And this psalm is helpful for us because it's a prayer that teaches us how to go through these moments of languishing and contemplation and reflection. We don't just journal. We don't just philosophize. We don't just think out loud. We pray. And so we're going to pray with Moses and let Moses' prayer teach us how to contemplate well. And I think there's kind of two phases in this psalm that Moses goes through. And they'll be the two points for this morning. Phase one, Contemplating about life. Phase two, pleading for grace. Let's jump in to phase one and journey with Moses as he's contemplating about life in verses one through 11. We see that Moses in verses one through 11 thinks deeply about what is going on and what he sees around him. And there's two key themes that he draws out, you would have noticed. God eternal, and the frailty of man, and he juxtaposes the two, contrasts the two. Let's read about God eternal in verse one and two. I mean, these are some beautiful words. These are words that you can take home with you and make as part of your prayer life. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are god in this contemplative stage Moses begins his prayer addressing god and he makes reference to his eternal and everlasting nature which to him is a source of strength and comfort and assurance did you notice how he what he ascribed to god that he is our dwelling place think of Moses and Israel wandering for 40 years through the desert Outside the promised land, longing for homes and houses, fortresses and walls, but God alone is their dwelling place. God alone is their home, their abode. God alone is the greatest of all dwelling places. Even better than the promised land is God himself, his nature and his being, to to know him, to have his presence. That is our great dwelling place. Because even the strongest of dwelling places, the mountains, you think, try and knock over Mount Everest. Not going to happen. Its roots go down into the core of the earth, yet God, God gave birth to them. God made Everest and it was easy. And so Moses contrasts the, the strongest thing you can think of in all human creation, mountains and says that God is even greater, God is even more secure, God is even better to be in than in a mountain dwelling. All other dwellings, all other palaces, all other places, mansions, our homes, castles, forts, they will fail. And even the mountains, which are ancient, are like a newborn baby compared to God's everlasting nature. And it's beautiful that Jesus picks up on this in John 15 and says, Whoever abides in me or dwells in me, you will bear much fruit remaining in me. So in God, in Christ, he is our dwelling place, our eternal one. And notice what he says about God, from everlasting to everlasting, unchanging, immovable, the unmoved mover, the uncaused causer, the one who is contingent upon no one or nothing. He is. And that is where Moses begins but in reflection of God's eternal nature, Moses now starts to pontificate about who we are as humans. And, and the past season of life, the season, if you call it that, two years or more, has taught us so much about the frailty of man. Verses three to six. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. In comparison to God, we are frail and fleeting, totally under the sovereign hand of the Lord. The one who formed the earth and gave birth to the mountains is the one who also made us from dust, formed life into us and breathed life into us. And not only that, it is he alone that takes our life from us. All of our lives are numbered by his command and will. The breath we have in our lungs is only sustained by the sovereign Lord, the everlasting one. That's how frail and fleeting we are. The only reason that each one of our heartbeats is beating this second is because God wills it to be so. You see in verse 3 that God is the one that returns us to the dust. On His sovereign will and on His timing and decree, each one of us will die. None of us is even in control of the time of our death. It's all according to God's will. And God, His years are but as a night. His years are but as a watch in the night, in fact. A couple of hours. <laughs> is a, is, sorry, our years, a thousand years, are but a watch in the night. We think a thousand years. What was happening in a thousand AD? You know, Charlemagne just had finished up in France, and then you go through the Protestant Reformation. We've seen the rise and fall of many kingdoms in that time. The rise and fall of the British Empire. The rise and fall of the American Empire. The, you know, who knows what is coming next That was just 11 a.m. to 1 a.m. to God, in a sense. (laughs) The White House in the U.S. is just nothing. All the tanks of Russia are as nothing. God can sweep us away like the floodwaters came through as we saw in January, and it's gone. All like grass that, you know, Henry just sowed grass and he's, he's my new neighbour and it is flourishing. He's just sowed seed, it's rained a ton, it's up, but I guarantee you if in a week it is hot weather, all of those grass seedlings will be dead unless he gets out there and irrigates them. Unless, and if he doesn't irrigate them, I'll go and water them for him. Because I love you Henry and I love you grass and I want to see it grassy not. But the, that's the reality of who we are as humans. We might look like, oh, look, I'm flourishing on this beautiful seedling, but give us a bit of heat and pff, we're gone. Vivid images, beautiful poetic images that Moses gives us here. It can all feel a bit depressing as we look at it, but it's helpful because it is reality, isn't it? Who here can name even one of your great great-grandparents, your dad's dad's dad. They were living life. They were loving life. They thought their lives were significant and meaningful. They were establishing things. They were making businesses and homes and getting things done, yet probably 99% of this room don't even know any of our great-great-grandparents, their names, where they lived or what they did. You might. But that will be us in a hundred years' time. No one will know. Riley Spring will fade into even more insignificance and all of us will be forgotten, most likely. And so Moses is reflecting upon all of this, perhaps toward the end of his life and saying, yeah, we can walk through red seas, we can you know, have courageous victories and all these things, but... We are just but dust. But now it's not just the frailty of man that Moses focuses on. He goes even deeper into the fallenness of man in verses 7 through 11. It's not just that we're futile, but that we're fallen and sinful. And these verses particularly relate to the people of Israel under the judgment of God in between Egypt and the promised land because of the way they'd rejected God. And so they were under a specific judgment that does not apply to you and I. So these, these verses, we, we read them differently in Christ. Um, so we don't have the same relationship to these verses, but we can resonate with them in our, our pre-saved state and even as we deal with the reality of our sins. So let me read verses 7 to 11 and we'll see not just the frailty of man, the fallenness. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The reality of death and futility weighed heavily upon Moses, and the reality of the sinfulness of the people, the sinfulness of God's chosen people who were shown so much grace, incredible redemption. Meal after meal was provided miraculously in the desert. Drink after drink provided miraculously in the desert. So much so that even their sandals did not wear out in 40 years. God provided for them, yet they turned their back on him. And it weighed heavily on Moses. Because death, although it was all around him, is not natural. Death feels like, oh yeah, that's just what happens, but it's not meant to be that way. Death is a sign of our sin. And of God's righteous judgment of sin. And all the people dying outside the Promised Land was a stark reminder of the fall in the garden. That when we reject God, we are cast out of true life. You too may feel similar feelings like this this morning. Perhaps you feel the heavy hand of God's discipline upon you, perhaps you feel the weight of your sin that your secret sins are being judged by God Almighty. And so this passage is a warning. God does not trifle with sin or sinners. He's not a giant teddy bear. He's not a universalist that allows everyone in. Yet I believe that we can come at this passage with far greater hope because of what we know about Christ. If we're in Jesus, we don't say these verses the same way. Yes, we may sin. Yes, our sins are before God. Yes, we are deserving of wrath, toil and trouble and the power of His anger. Yet, in His mercy and grace in Christ, they are all covered and even forgotten. There's a beautiful way that the Christian reads these, that we are not brought to an end by His anger. By His wrath, we are not dismayed. Yes, our secret sins may be known, but they are forgiven and covered. We don't end our years with a sigh, with promises unfulfilled. Rather, we end our years with promotion to glory. Because of our salvation in Christ that He took upon Himself our sins, when we close our eyes in death, we awake to new life. We actually get to see God face to face and we get the the foretaste of the future promised land which will come in the the second coming of Christ. So let these verses in 7 to 11 be a warning. If you're trifling with sin and you're not yet in Christ, this is your reality. You will end your days in a sigh and it will get worse. God's anger and wrath will be upon you. And he does not trifle with sin. Yet, if you come to Christ and are in Christ, then these these words can remind you of what you won't experience. That in him you're secure. In him you have grace. So, we see a powerful and somber contemplation of life in verses 1 through 11. Life and death. A man who lived 120 years, who saw the highs and the lows. And he wants us to contemplate with him. And he wanted us to see two unchanging realities about life God eternal and the frailty of man. Perhaps you resonate with him. (laughs) Yep, I feel it, the frailty. So what do we do in light of the realities of this frailty and fallenness? Well, because we know and love our everlasting God who is all-powerful and in control, we turn to Him. Moses doesn't end his prayer with a sigh, but instead he moves to pleading for grace. And that's point number two. Point number one, contemplating about life. Point number two, pleading for grace. And we see here a prayer for wisdom and mercy. What do we do in light of our futility and fallenness? Well, we come before the throne room of God. We don't sit back and just go, meh, or blah, or doom scroll, or whatever binge. No, we come before the throne and we plead with God based on His unchanging nature and character. And we can plead these types of things that Moses pleads for here. And we're going to see three pleas that Moses makes that can be our prayers in the light of our futility. Plea number one, a plea for wisdom. Look at verse 12. So in light of all this, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses wants the people of Israel and for us to number our days that we may grow wise. That by numbering our days, literally sort of counting them up, counting up the days that we have and those around us have, we would see that our time here is short and fleeting. We are but dust, a frail thing washed away by the waters of affliction, like withering grass in the heat of the day. And so in the light of the reality of the shortness of our days, we would get wisdom. What is wisdom? A heart of wisdom. What does Moses mean? What is he actually driving at? Well, wisdom, biblically defined, is the skill of living well. It's living in God's world, God's way. So numbering our days will help us to live in God's world, God's way. It will help us to live skillfully. And the beginning of wisdom, we're told in Scripture, is the fear of the Lord. Numbering our days makes us realize that we are not God. It makes us contemplate His eternal nature and that He is the Creator and we are creation. And by numbering our days and knowing our futility, rather than leading it to depression, it leads us to dependence. And in that dependence, then we have the wisdom to go forward. We'll actually go before God and say, Lord, You are the eternal one. How do You want me to live? How do You want me to make use of my short and fleeting life? I'm just but grass. I'll be gone by next year couple of years time, however, however many long we've got left, we don't know. Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? Imagine if the Israelites had a feared the Lord. Imagine if they had a numbered their days and realised the everlasting God is on our side. These Canaanites have got nothing. They would have been living in the promised land by this time. They would have been enjoying houses not made by them, walls not put up by them, fields not ploughed by them, and they would have been feasting and enjoying, but instead they were trudging through the desert wilderness because they were not wise. They did not fear the Lord, and therefore they did not live well. So friends, how are you numbering your days? Are you living wisely? Are you making the best use of your time? Are you fearing God and living in light of that? As we number our days, it can help us to not flit away the months and the years in godless triviality. And it's not exactly hard to know what we're meant to do as followers of God. Jesus summarised it for us so clearly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself and make disciples. The time is short. Every day is a gift from the Lord for us to do those three things, to love God, love neighbour, make disciples. And if we fear God, number our days, live well, then we will do those things and we'll actually get to the end of our life and not have wasted it. No one wants to waste their life And imagine if we are able to marshal the small amount of time that we have and devote our attention boldly to doing these things. We could be the opposite of the Israelites, missing out on the promised land. Instead, we can cash in on the way that God wants us to live now. We would obey the commands, be wise and live well. So what do we do? We plead to God. Lord, help me to number my days so that I may get a heart of wisdom. I need to pray that prayer. So often I want to flit away my time. And it's not that we can't have recreation and downtime. It's just that we do it in view of those commands. We do our downtime to the glory of God. We, we do our work to the glory of God. We do everything in those bounds and then we won't waste it. Secondly, Moses pleased for mercy, a plea for mercy, verse 13 to 16. Return, or in the old version, repent, is what Moses says. O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children." You see here, Moses is now looking out and going, okay, we're cut off from the promised land, but still please Lord, don't lay your heavy hand of discipline completely upon upon us. Instead, turn now and be merciful to us, even in our plight, even in our fallenness, even in our futility. Make us wake up in the morning and don't just satisfy us with bread and water and food and quail, but satisfy us with this steadfast love. That ultimately satisfying thing. Wouldn't you love to wake up every morning with a keen and sharp awareness that God loves you with unbreakable covenantal love, that He will never cast you off, that you will rise out of your bed full of joy? Wouldn't you want that? I want that every morning. We'll plea for it. Plea that you would rejoice and be glad all your days. Do you want to live the rest of your life in full enjoyment of God, not in the pursuits of this world, but in Him? even if he would bring storm after storm in your life, that you would rejoice and be glad in him all your days and never become like the Israelites, groaning, grumbling, accusing of God. Moses even asked for God to kind of repay them. For as many years as you've afflicted us, give us grace in return. Make the, the rest of our years better. Perhaps you are in the heat of discipline or a time of pain. You can pray a prayer like this. Lord, I have suffered much for many months and years. Please repay me with reprieve, if it be your will. Ask Lord to take the years of turmoil and repay you with kindness and mercy. It's a bold prayer. But it's a prayer that we can pray because God's our father and Christ is our brother and the spirit is our inheritance guaranteed from within. Do you know God like Moses knows God that you could pray these prayers and feel real? Do you want God like Moses wanted God that you could pray these prayers and they feel real? Do you want to be satisfied with him? I do and I want to want it even more. And finally, Moses kind of combines the two themes of the whole psalm and brings them together in this final plea in verse 17. Remember, God's eternal nature, our frailty, our need of grace. And so he says, verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. It's again, pleading for mercy. And then our frailty, our futility, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It ends with this desperate plea. Okay, if I'm grass if I'm futile, if I can be swept away like a flood, if everything can go away like that, if my time is so short, I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to waste my labors and my efforts. I don't want to set up tents and pack them down for 40 years and have it go into the dust. I want to have a life that counts. And so, oh Lord, establish the work of my hands. That's the prayer. It's a great prayer. But it begs the question, What are you building with your life? What do you want God to establish with the work of your hands? What are you working at in the goals of your career and your family, your friends, your church life? What are you actually doing so that you could pray, God, establish the work of my hands confidently? Because isn't it true that it's possible that we could be building little towers of Babels in our life? Works that are all about our glory and our comfort and our ease and our joy and all these things. And so when we pray, establish the work of our hands. If we're not doing what God calls us to doing, we're saying, God, help me build my Babel Tower better. But this prayer invites us to think deeply along with verse 12. Teach us to number eight. Give us a heart of wisdom. Establish the work of our hands, which presupposes we are doing the right things. We're doing things that ought to be established. We're doing things in line with God's will. So what are you doing with your personal life that God should establish? Fathers and husbands, what are you doing in your families that God would establish it? Workers, what are you doing with your careers that God would establish the work of your hands? Servants of our church, what are you doing that God would establish the work of your hands? Are your goals, uh, are the priorities of your life aligned with that prayer that God would say, yes, I will establish that. I will help you. I will make that happen because this is my will. This is for my glory. This goes along with my plan. And how I pray this prayer for us as a church. How I wish that God would establish the work of our hands here at Southern Grace Parramatta. Our aim is to build a community of believers who are passionate about knowing, applying and proclaiming the glorious gospel of Christ here in Parramatta. Would God establish the work of our hands? Yes, would he establish the work of our hands? Would our services not be in vain? Would our labors not be in vain? Would our giving not be in vain? Would our sacrifices not be in vain? But would God establish it? It doesn't have to be epic. It doesn't have to be in the headlines. It doesn't have to be any of that. We just want whatever we're doing that aligns with God's will, we want God to establish it, form it, strengthen it. So, as we contemplate life, as we begin even a new school term, perhaps in our languishing, stagnation, Perhaps in our contemplation, maybe you're toward the end of your life like Moses was and you're considering what's left to come. How do we deal with it? Well, not mere philosophizing, journaling, or distraction. Turn your thinking, contemplation into prayer. Contemplate life and know that God is eternal and you are frail. And plead with God that in your frailty and your fallenness, He would give you a heart of wisdom. He would give you mercy daily. And He would establish the work of your hands. But most of all, that He would give you Himself. I want to end by reading verse 1 to 2 one more time. May this be our cry and our prayer. And then we're going to respond by singing this psalm in a modern version by Sovereign Grace. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Oh Lord, you are our fortress, our dwelling place, you are our everything. And so God, we pray and ask that as your church, you would help us to, Contemplate. And then you would help us to plead. Plead for wisdom. Would you make us a wise people, O Lord? Would you make us a people full of your mercy and grace to the next generation? Show us your power, O God. We desire to see amazing things happen in our church and more. Show us your works and show them to our children. Lord, in Jesus' name, we pray that your favor would be upon us and you would establish the work of our hands. Yes, oh Lord, establish the work of our hands. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.